Get Sleepy is a production of Slumber Studios and is made possible thanks to the generous support of our sponsors and premium members. If you'd like to listen ad-free and access weekly bonus episodes, extra long stories, and our entire back catalogue, you can try out Premium free for seven days by following the link in the episode notes. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. Welcome to Get Sleepy, where we listen, we relax, and we get sleepy. As always, I'm your host, Thomas. Thank you for joining me tonight. Like many fairy tales and folk tales, the stories of Robin Hood and his merry men can be traced back for hundreds of years. Belonging to no author in particular, they shapeshift over time, but there are some common threads that can be followed, and we'll be joining that tapestry of storytelling tonight in this sleepy version written by Alicia. To accompany my narration as I tell the tale, we have an expanded soundscape to bring to life many of the described sounds and scenes even more. I really hope you enjoy it and feel soothingly immersed as you listen and drift off. Before we begin, I want to remind you that you can enjoy a completely ad-free listening experience by becoming one of our cherished premium supporters. As well as everything being completely ad-free, premium listeners receive a whole host of other great benefits to make a good night's rest even easier to come by. For example, right now we have roughly 150 free episodes on the public feed, but on premium, you'll have access to our entire catalogue of over 550 full-length stories and meditations. Plus, you'll receive an exclusive bonus episode every single week. And this week, we have two bonus stories coming up on the premium feed. Tomorrow, we have the tale of a visual artist working in her studio, preparing for an exhibition. Then, on Friday, we have a special, long-length episode, combining two stories read by a reef, the cave of treasure, and a journey with a gin. Why not give Get Sleepy Premium a try this week? The first seven days are free, and you can cancel any time. For more information on all of our premium plans, visit getsleepy.com support or just follow the link in the show notes. Before you are magically transported to the adventurous and colourful world of Sherwood Forest, take a moment to prepare yourself. Let go of the emails, the paperwork, the appointments, and the errands. Set aside the to-do list and the hustle and bustle 
of the modern world. Take a nice deep breath in, and then let it out, feeling all the stress of your day leaving your body. Take a moment to be grateful for another day, no matter how it went for you. You made it through, and now you're rewarded with the opportunity to completely relax and let go. Tomorrow is a new day with fresh possibilities, so you can look forward to it in peace and positivity. Now snuggle deeply into your favorite pillow. Find your coziest position in bed and ready yourself for relaxing tales. We are heading deep down the mysterious paths of Sherwood Forest, where the birds and the wildflowers abound. This is where our story begins. You find yourself on a lightly worn road that weaves its way through the depths of an English forest. It is an earthy path with a line of grass that runs down the middle, as if it has only been travelled by horse carts. As is often the case with dreams, You don't know exactly how you got here, but you are filled with a sense of wonder. You have a feeling of being gently immersed in nature, as if the very trees are welcoming you with an age-old embrace. Although this place is not familiar to you, It feels like a home from an earlier time or another life. This enchanting, wooded glen is welcoming you back to the fold like a long-lost friend. High in the treetops, it seems like a thousand birds are chirping sweetly. It is afternoon. You can tell by the golden tone of the light that reaches the ground here. It's a truly lovely day with fine weather 
The air has the feeling of the early summer about it, fresh and scented with green leaves, and not too hot. The bees are lazily humming amidst the wildflowers. You consider curling up and taking a peaceful nap, but you are very curious about your surroundings and would like to explore. You notice a very small trail that leads away from the road and into the shady depths of the woods. Just like any winding little path would be, it is irresistible to you, and you know right away that you will follow it. Leaving the bright light of the road behind, you slip into the verdant embrace of this fairy forest, ready to go wherever the mood will take you. You put one foot in front of the other, following the subtle track through the forest. On either side of you, signs of the oncoming season are everywhere. In fact, it is as if you have caught the perfect moment when nature is balancing between spring and summer. As the road recedes behind you, a sea of late bluebells appears to one side. Ancient-looking trees stand quietly, rooted in a carpet of deep purple flowers. The delicate blooms bow their heads shyly. They will soon make way for the plants of high summer, but continue to grace the forest floor here for another day. The trail carries on, disappearing between moss-covered boulders. A grey squirrel sits upon one of these stones, holding an acorn and regarding you curiously. You catch your breath as you pass, not wanting to startle the inquisitive little animal. It cocks its head to the side, deciding you are not a threat. Then, in no major hurry, the creature hops over the back of the large rock and disappears into a hiding spot under a nearby tree trunk. You become aware of the sound of rushing water and realize that a river might be nearby. As you continue along your course, you realize that there is a waterfall ahead. The 
twists and turns of your progress seem to sometimes take you a little bit away from its gentle splashing. But then the sound becomes even closer than before. Finally, all at once, you are standing on a river bank, looking at the place you have been seeking. The water cascades down a series of small ledges, its clear streams melting into a small churning foam at the bottom. You can imagine plunging into its pristine coolness on a hot day, but this is not the time for it. You are keen to see more of the forest. You can see your path is meant to cross a series of dry stones that peek out of the water, because it continues onwards at the other side of the falls. With a childish sense of delight, you begin your progress over the river on the stones. Sure-footed, you hop lightly from one to another, never losing your balance. You're soon on the other side, feeling proud of your skill in traversing this natural obstacle course. You turn to look at the pretty little waterfall one more time. As you do, a kingfisher darts into view and settles on one of the rocks you just crossed. The beautiful bird regards you for a moment, opening and closing its long beak. Then, in a flash of teal and orange, it is gone. You turn again to the path ahead and plunge deeper into the forest. There is a thick growth of bramble on the side here, and your mouth waters to think of the plump blackberries that will adorn it in a month or so. As you are watching, a hedgehog ambles across your path, disappearing into the gorse bush on the other side. You lean over, smiling and hoping to spot the little animal. It is nowhere to be found, but you stop walking to inhale the heady coconut scent from the yellow blossoms that grow there. As you stand back up, two butterflies separate from the bush and fly up into the air, disappearing 
into the sunbeams above. You are distracted from your hedgehog observation by the strains of a flute drifting through the trees. Hardly believing it, you still your breath and lean towards the sound. It's not just a flute that you hear. There is also a string instrument and the light rhythm of a drum. You feel a small thrill as you begin moving down the path in the direction of the music. The trees of the forest give way to a clearing, and you are astonished at what lies before you. Scanning the scene with your eyes, you see what appears to be a well-disguised village with many small thatched huts and tents sheltering under trees and nestled into undergrowth. In the midst of it all is an open area with a bonfire. The flames are releasing sparks that float up into the air. Milling about, occupying the clearing, is a large company of festive villagers. They appear to be having a celebration. Couples are dancing and laughing, looking like they may almost be out of breath after many rounds. Baskets of nuts and platters holding bread and cheese are placed on a large board supported by several stumps where revelers help themselves. The tantalizing smell of roasting meat drifts by, and you turn to see that it is coming from a spit roasting over the fire. A tall man with a beard stands upon a rock, raises his earthenware mug, and calls out that everyone should toast the bride and groom. As the company responds enthusiastically, a pretty maid in a lovely blue linen gown steps forward from the group of dancers and curtsies dramatically. She brings a hand to her head to steady a crown of daisies that rests there. The groom appears to be one of the musicians. He ceases playing the harp and stands upon his own seat, spreading his arms wide. Huzzah for Alan and his lovely Margaret, another man cries. 
the crowd applauds. You find yourself quietly clapping your own hands together in delight. You feel the joy that suffuses this entire party. As you do so, a kindly looking lady in homespun clothes approaches you, beckoning with her hand. She tells you to come on then and get yourself some refreshment and join the fun. You cannot believe your good fortune and you gladly accept. You follow her to the fireside where she pours you something into a mug and hands it to you. As you lift your drink, the musicians strike up a lively tune. The dancers begin to move again, spinning like the machinery of a clock. Late spring blossoms float down around them to the forest floor. You are pulled from your reverie by the sound of a man's voice behind you. Good evening, stranger, he says with a friendly tone. You turn to see a strapping, bearded fellow holding a pint of his own. He's dressed in simple, peasant clothing, like most of the others present, and his cap has a feather in it. He says, Have you any coin? If so, I beg you to hand it over so we can offer some of it for the poor. If not, you're still welcome at our fire because we have plenty of food and drink to share with you. Smiling, you turn your pocket inside out, revealing it to be empty. The man grins ear to ear and pats you on the back in good nature. Ah then, he says, have a seat and join us in this merry wedding banquet. Motioning to a log that serves as a bench, he sits down at one end. You take the other a portly man in a brown robe appears with a mug in hand. Your host introduces him as Tuck and then tells you his own name is Robin. The man in the robe nods at you amiably and raises the mug. Then he seats himself opposite you at the fire. Robin turns to you, indicating in the direction of his companion. He says, 
we've just today met this good fellow, with whom the wedding could not have taken place. Isn't that right, Tuck? The man in the brown robe chuckles, giving his assent. He tells you that it has been a most eventful afternoon. Robin turns back to you, the slanting beams of the sunset gleaming through the trees behind him. He says that he will relate the story if you have the time. You take a sip from your mug and nod eagerly. You innately sense that you have all the time in the world and you know that nothing would please you more than to hear all about it. With the sound of the dancing revelers behind you and the crackling fire before you, Robin begins his tale. My fellows and I were heading out today hoping to catch some rich noblemen on the road. After all, they never mind emptying their pockets to feed the poor, when asked nicely. At this, Robin winks. As we were on our way, we came upon that young man over there, whose name is Alan. He points in the direction of the harpist, whom you recall being the groom. He was most inconsolable, weeping by the side of the road. We asked him whatever had brought him to this low state. He told us that his one true love was this very day to be married to a very rich old knight. Her father had arranged it, and he had no hope of saving her from the wedding. Robin makes a comical, shocked face, and then goes on. This seemed a terrible injustice for the young man and his love, so we all pledged to go with him, interrupt the wedding, and marry him to the lovely maiden instead. However, there was a problem. We had to find a religious man to conduct the ceremony. After all, we were quite sure that the corrupt bishop summoned by the rich knight wouldn't be amenable. Where in the world could we find such an officiant, we all thought. One man in our party said that a good friar lived just over the river. This seemed a likely solution, so we set out to locate this godly man and hoped then to hurry on our way to the church. As I said, 
we were told he would be found across the waterway. However, as we approached the riverbank, we heard voices and singing nearby, and we were quite distracted. Creeping up on the source of the noise, who did I see but this disreputable person? Robin nods somewhat derisively at Tuck, who leans back laughing and slapping his knee. Robin continues. He was eating a large slice of cold pie in his right hand, and he had a mighty mug of ale in his left. And can you believe he was carrying on a conversation in two different voices? At this, Tuck blushes somewhat and defensively adds, that a man must amuse himself. Robin rolls his eyes and goes on. He was offering the slice of pie to his left hand and then a drink to his right hand and taking large bites of pie and swigs of ale. Then, when his meal was all gone, he was still not finished with his play-acting. Next, he began to sing. You laugh behind your hand, a picture of the hilarity forming in your mind. I couldn't resist being part of the jest, Robin says. As he warbled on, I joined him in a high, ladylike voice, which alarmed him very much. Breaking off from the story, Robin convulses with laughter, clearly amused by the recollection. Tuck is also quite entertained by it. You are eager to hear what happened next. So, you listen on. The good fellow was annoyed by my joke, accusing me of spying on him, but I quickly revealed my true intention. I asked him if he knew of a religious man who lived nearby, because we had need of him for our wedding. He said he did. Well, I was very happy to hear this, and I asked him if he happened to know whether the friar was to be found on this side or the other side of the river. In response, he said something quite rude. Robin pauses dramatically. He told me, that was something I would have to find out for myself. You look at Tuck, who is laughing into his sleeve. Robin continues. Well, I said that I would beg him to please carry me across the river on his back, 
so I could find out if the friar was there. After all, I was preparing to attend a wedding and could not afford to get my clothes wet. At this, our friend Tuck appeared to think deeply. Then, he agreed that it would be the Christian thing to do, and he let me climb upon his back and even offered to carry my sword for me. Robin pauses here, taking a deep sip from his mug. Then he goes on. Well, he did get me to the other side and placed me down on the dry banks. However, when I requested my sword, he refused to hand it over. In fact, he told me that he would only give me my weapon if I carried him back across the river to where we'd started. Robin's eyes dart mischievously to Tuck as he tells this. In his turn, Tuck reveals nothing. Instead, he seems very focused on sipping from his mug, but he has a smile on his face. I agreed to carry him back across, as I needed my sword. But part way across the river, I felt a bit tired, and I decided to drop him immediately. At this development in the story, both men laugh uproariously. Naturally, at this insult by me, our quarterstaffs had to be drawn for fighting. A battle ensued, Robin explains. I must admit that I was quite surprised by Tuck's skill and his agility. As my men cheered from the banks, this man and I fought long and hard. In the end, we were both very wet, and we decided it must be a draw, and that neither of us would be the winner. And so, we became friends. At this, both men grin, and take another drink from their mugs. Robin points at Tuck with his elbow and adds, Tuck here admitted that he himself was the friar we were seeking. When we shared with him our important mission, he agreed to come along and marry young Alan and his beloved. At this, Friar Tuck nods sagely. Robin pauses in his story to refill his mug. All three of you look around the bonfire, noting the approach of twilight 
far from quelling the party. The onset of the evening seems to make the event even more festive. More platters of food are appearing, and the music has picked up its pace. Nodding with silent satisfaction, your companions return their attention to you, and ask if you want to hear what happened at the church. You say that you do, and Robin is obviously delighted to comply. We made haste to the village church, where young Margaret was scheduled to be married, he says. Alan was dubious that we could stop the wedding. He told us there was nothing we could do to persuade her father to choose him over the rich knight. However, I told him that Robin Hood does not lose his battles and that we would find a way. When we got there, it was just in the nick of time. The pews were full of wedding guests who were there to witness the misguided union. The couple was standing at the altar with Margaret's father nearby. At this, Robin makes an expression of distaste. He adds, Indeed, her bridegroom was an elderly and pompous-looking man. Although the bride's father was a simple tradesman, it was apparent to us why the knight would covet Margaret for his wife. She was one of the fairest maidens I had ever seen. Robin nods jovially over his shoulder at the dancing woman in the blue dress. Following his glance, you smile in agreement. The story continues. Well, we burst through the doors of the church and created quite a commotion, calling out that the wedding must be stopped, for Margaret's true love, Alan, was present. Her father was very angry at the interruption, demanding that we all leave at once, and I will admit that swords were drawn. Robin pauses his story meaningfully, teasing out the suspense. Then he stands dramatically and spreads his hands wide, saying, The old knight interjected. He said he had no taste for a bride who loved another, and that it was beneath him to marry Margaret when her affections lay elsewhere. Meanwhile, her father was beside himself, calling us thieves and saying he would never let his daughter 
marry Alan on any account. Robin stops talking and claps his hands to his head, as if in despair, saying, At this, I summoned one of my men who handed me a bag of gold coins we'd received from a wealthy traveller on the road the day before. Robin winks meaningfully and goes on. I told her father that he had two choices. Either she would marry Alan with his permission and receive the bag of gold as compensation, or he could refuse to give his blessing. If so, she would marry Alan anyhow, and he would have no gold whatsoever. Robin shrugs, as if the answer is obvious. Then he continues. At that moment, the good friar called out loudly that the knight had best take his old bones and leave. This the knight found most offensive. Here, Robin and Tuck convulse with laughter. Then Robin composes himself and resumes his story. The knight and his guests stormed out of the church, whispering scandalously about this shocking turn of events. So too did the rich bishop, who had witnessed this entire exchange with an open mouth, like a fish. That's when our Friar Tuck stepped in to save the day. Alan and Margaret were joined in holy matrimony, and the entire company gave a great cheer. And here we are, all enjoying their wedding feast. At this triumphant conclusion, the jolly Friar Tuck slaps his own leg appreciatively and the two men hold up their mugs in a toast to one another. Sipping your own drink, you turn and survey the scene in the cosy glen. Several motherly-looking women stand gossiping on the other side of the fire, Late into the afternoon's revelries, tendrils of hair escape their sensible white caps, and their sleeves are rolled up. They are having fun now, as one of them wildly gestures her way through either a joke or a story, and the other two roar with laughter. Then the lady who was telling the story pauses to speak to a small boy 
who has run up and grabbed her wide skirts. He is presumably making some sort of entreaty. Looking at the boy with mock sternness, she gives her permission. Then she smiles indulgently as he runs to the platters and takes a treat. Grinning ear to ear, the child ducks into the shadows of the clearing. A small group of other children can be heard giggling with him as he disappears. Turning in another direction, you see two men letting arrows fly to a target. There is clearly a wager involved, and several onlookers are gathered to watch the fun. Robin notices you observing the contest, and leans in, as if to share a secret with you. Have you heard, he whispers, about how we hoodwinked the Sheriff of Nottingham at his own archery competition? Having joined Robin and his men only just that day, Friar Tuck leans in with great interest. He has not heard this story either. It is apparent by his air of delight, that he has no love for the sheriff. You settle yourself comfortably on the log, accepting a thick slice of freshly baked bread that Robin hands you. Taking a bite of it, you wait to hear the story. Robin begins. It so happens that tales of me and my merry men have begun to spread far and wide. At this, Robin makes a face of mock surprise. Now, let me be clear. We are God-fearing men who love King Richard we are forever in his service. However, King Richard is away fighting foreign battles. Meanwhile, the nobles who should have been taking care of the people are instead robbing them mercilessly. At this statement, Friar Tuck gives a sober nod. Robin goes on. When we accost these wealthy folk on the road, we are very fair to them. We graciously invite them to our fireside for a feast. We guide them politely here. Then, when the eating and the drinking are done, we simply ask them to produce all the riches on their person and leave us two-thirds of the amount. 
Robin shrugs, his hands in the air, as if to say, what could be more reasonable? You express complete agreement. Robin elaborates. Then we take that coin, or those jewels, and we redistribute the wealth to villagers who have been nearly starved out of their homes. Their children with no shoes, their babes with no food. I ask you, is that just? Are we not doing work that is good and honourable? Robin makes a dismissive motion, adding, King Richard would approve. You nod. It seems very sensible. Robin looks up at the stars, as if gathering the details of his story. Then he holds up a finger and squints, capturing and preparing the memories for your ears. When he begins, the story goes like this. The Sheriff of Nottingham has become heartily sick with our highway exploits, but what he hates most is that the people love and protect us. No matter what he does, his oafish guardsmen are unable to detect our movements or capture us in the woods. So, he devised what he thought would be a marvellous trap. Pausing here for emphasis and grinning wickedly, Robin reveals the rest. There was to be an archery contest with a large prize, for he knew that Robin Hood was rumoured to be the greatest archer in the land, and also desirous of wealth that he could redistribute. Robin says this last bit with a flourish of his hand, as if scattering gold to imaginary friends. Notices were posted far and wide, announcing the date and the place of this grand competition. Of course, people will talk, and the villagers were soon aware of his motives. They sent word to us that we should stay far away from this archery contest, regardless of the spoils that were to be had. At this, Friar Tuck sighs and shakes his head in tragic disappointment. But Robin waves his finger in Tuck's direction. Nay, do not despair, Friar, for Robin and his men are not to be discouraged by such small problems. 
the friar laughs conspiratorially and brightens up at this news. He knows a rollicking story is coming. We decided that all of us would go to the competition in clever disguises. There were many protests among my men that I would be recognized regardless, but I knew I could transform myself beyond suspicion. I devised a costume of tattered clothing, such as a very poor traveling stranger might wear. Then I dyed my beard dark brown and placed a patch over one of my eyes. Robin halts his story and places a palm over the left side of his face, grinning from ear to ear. Tilting your head to the side, you can imagine how hard it would be to unmask him in such a costume. The day of the contest arrived, Robin says, gesturing broadly, and my men and I went to Nottingham, each dressed in a disguise. We masqueraded as religious men, beggars, or whatever seemed inscrutable. I wanted my friends to be there with me, armed, in case I needed them. But I was confident that my plan to win the prize would work. Robin leans back, as if recalling a pleasant memory. How festive the town was that day, he relates. Fine lords and ladies were seated in the stands with the best view of the excitement. Crowding the lower seats and the rails of the arena were the common folk, eager to forget their troubles for the day and have some fun. Striped tents abounded and coloured pennants rippled proudly in the breeze. It was a sight to behold. You all pause for a moment by the crackling fire, heads down as if reverently picturing this great day. Then Robin goes on. Many of the most famous archers in the land were there, and this was to my advantage. The Sheriff of Nottingham sat on his dais, draped in velvet and gold chains, his richly dressed lady at his side. His advisers surrounded him, carefully scanning the row of archers in an effort to find me. But most of these contestants were famous in their own right. Nottingham's men told him repeatedly 
that they knew I was not present, for only two archers were unknown to them, and each of the others could clearly be identified. One of the unknown men was far too short to be Robin Hood, the other wearing tatters and with a brown beard and an eye patch. This man could not be the fair-haired Robin who had two good eyes. No, they told the sheriff regretfully. They did not see the outlaw, Robin Hood. Feigning humility, Robin relates the details of the archery competition only briefly. Suffice to say, he continues, the other archers made a strong showing. However, when it was finally my turn to shoot, I managed to best them all. At this, he shrugs in false modesty and continues. Despite the jeers at my appearance, and my apparent lack of one eye, my arrow flew true to the very center of the target. In doing so, it actually shaved a feather off the one that everyone thought would be the closest. At this, Friar Tuck nods approvingly, as if all's right with the world. The sheriff awarded me the grand prize, which was a bag of gold coins, and the people cheered to see such a humble man take home the winnings. Then the sheriff virtually begged to know my name and asked if I would join his guard, for he had never seen a finer archer in his life. Robin stops talking and shakes his head, grimacing. You wait while he places his mug on the log next to him, bracing his hands on his knees. I told him that my name was Peter of Tamworth and that I would not accept his offer because no man in Merry England would ever be my master. At this, the sheriff trembled with anger and told me to be gone, for I was insolent and he would not tolerate me. Quite gladly, I made a hasty retreat and my men and I celebrated our spoils that night around the fire here in Sherwood Forest. You're almost moved to clap at this triumphant ending, but the look on Robin's face tells you that there is yet an epilogue to this tale.
Robin holds up his finger, lengthening the suspense, and then he reveals the rest. Days later, I must admit I was somewhat vexed when my friend Little John told me that the sheriff was speaking ill of Robin Hood, saying he was too cowardly to appear at the archery contest. He said that Robin's skills were unequal to those of even a tattered wanderer. Here he pauses and shrugs, as if to admit some type of mischief. I couldn't let the sheriff know he had won. Little John promised to right this wrong for me, and so he did. While the sheriff was dining amidst a great company in his hall, a blunted arrow was shot through the window, attached to a small scroll. Upon opening the scroll, the sheriff read these words. Here, Robin stands with one hand elegantly outstretched and recites the following verse. Now heaven bless thy grace this day, say all in sweet Sherwood for thou didst give the prize away to merry Robin Hood. At this satisfying conclusion to the story, you and Tuck begin laughing and clapping your hands. You feel as if Robin's triumph is your own. In fact, you are filled with such a sense of fellowship and happiness that you never want this night to end. Within moments, your colourful host is distracted, however. The entire company is diverted by the appearance of a very beautiful lady who has arrived on a tall horse, accompanied by a friend. Robin excuses himself hastily and walks eagerly in her direction. As you and Friar Tuck raise your eyebrows at each other, one of the women manning the feast table leans in your direction to offer clarification. This is the good lady Marion, she whispers, winking as if you were all in on a secret together. You see Robin standing in front of the new arrivals now. He bows deeply with great seriousness, and then takes Marion's hand and plants a light kiss upon the top of it. 
she receives this graciously and without embarrassment, as if she is accustomed to respect. Without releasing her fingers, Robin leads her deferentially to the place where the dancing couples stand, smiling like they've all been waiting for her to arrive. Then, as if some signal has been given, the tireless musicians strike up a gentle ballad. The stars are now winking in the sky. The evening is not over, but the temperature of the festivities is cooling from gaiety to perhaps, romance and reflection. You see that Tuck has wandered off. Finding yourself at liberty, you rise and leave the circle of firelight drifting into the shadows that surround the clearing. The scene in this hidden glen is magical. The children who had run freely through the party earlier have quietly been tucked into their beds. They are dreaming sweetly under thatched cottage roofs and small, cozy tents. Meanwhile, the men and women of Robin's merry company dance on, fireflies drifting among them like floating sparks. Alan has relinquished his duty as a musician and is happily swaying in the shadows of the firelight with his lovely Margaret. They cannot bring themselves to close their eyes and end this beautiful day. The two remaining musicians on duty continue to accentuate the quiet mood. The drummer lightly beats time on his drum and sings, while the man with the flute continues his gentle, piping tune. Just when you feel yourself unable to resist this forest lullaby, you sense a light tap on the shoulder. One of the capable women from the fireside is standing behind you, smiling. She comments that it's no time to be heading off into the woods by yourself, and asks if you would like to borrow a bed for the night. 
you are immediately grateful for this marvelous offer. As one reveler after another disappears into the shadows in search of respite, you decide to do the same. You follow your generous hostess around the edge of the glen and down a moonlit path that disappears into the trees. She stops in front of a spot where someone has built a little tree house. It's nothing but a sturdy platform in the perfect nook of a very old oak. You will be far enough from the ground to feel snug and secure, but close enough to remain completely sheltered by foliage. She tells you there's a comfy bed up there, and that you should let her know if there's anything else you need. Then, patting you on the shoulder in a friendly way, she ambles off into the gloom. You climb the five or six rungs up the makeshift stairs and find yourself on this clever platform. As promised, a fresh pallet lies here, stuffed with sweet-smelling straw and topped with soft brown blankets. You lie down on your back, looking straight up. The branches of the trees tower above you, holding your view in a circular embrace. Right in the very center, like a private window, the night sky shows through. You feel as if you have never seen so many stars. They shine brilliantly, like tiny pinpricks embedded in an infinite midnight blue. It's like they are saying, we are watching over you. You feel yourself entering a drowsy state. Idly, your mind ponders the vastness of the woods around you. An owl hoots softly from somewhere nearby. The melody of the flute whispers through the trees. with dancers sedately marking the minutes nearby. But the heavens 
as your only true witness. You know you are at the perfect end of a fairy tale. You are deep in the sheltering arms of Sherwood Forest. And you drift off to sleep.